0: This is the Flannery Podcast, Episode 21, The Issue, Our Fight to Restore the Republic. Stay tuned. This is a special edition of the Flannery Podcast. We hope to cover several significant battlefields that will determine how and when we may restore the republic put at risk because of the monarchical arc of our current chief executive, Mr. Trump. Speaker Pelosi has been fond of quoting Benjamin Franklin, who, when asked about our Constitution back in 1787, he said, You have a republic if you can keep it. That's the question before the nation. Can we restore it so we may keep it? That is the fight we're engaged in to restore a republic that Trump has done everything he could to dissolve. We are struggling to reign in racism right now. We're fighting for our First Amendment exertions to protest what's wrong in America. We are struggling to preserve the rule of law, which has become something we say, but that doesn't exist in connection with our chief executive. We have a virus that is infecting more each day, causing more deaths than Trump ever admitted were possible. We have several special guests I think you'll agree can help us consider these several issues. But first, where do we find ourselves? In this season of protests, the nation is coping with systemic racism. The conscience of America has been awakened, stirred to reaction by police violence. When a black man, George Floyd, suspected of passing a $20 counterfeit bill in Minneapolis was choked to death by a police officer aided by three other police officers in plain view, of citizens stricken by what they saw and all of it recorded by one young person. Because of that video recording, everyone in America ultimately saw how the police in Minneapolis abused and murdered a black man only suspected of committing a misdemeanor. This deadly force became a flashpoint sparking a coalition of diverse people, a rainbow coalition, Jesse Jackson might say, and they protested in Minneapolis and that protest spread across the nation and throughout the world. The world hungry to see some of that old American fight for freedom and equality that had been hidden by our chief executive defeated and compromised in every way by Mr. Trump. Citizens demanded justice as the incidents mounted prompting resignations, suspensions, firings and criminal charges against corrupt police officer. Out of these actions by the people arose reforms that would be real game changers in the nation, pushing back against racism. And on the Hill, special legislation in the House of Representatives, the Justice and Policing Act, that could make a real difference in America, and it was named after George Floyd. The House of Representatives, the People's House, has been struggling to pass legislation to address these abuses both those involving racism and more. In this regard, we'll be talking with Bobby Scott, chairman of the House Education and Labor Committee, who will give us some idea what it's like to be inside the House these days, pushing for reforms, ignored by the Senate and the White House, meaning Mr. Trump and his cabinet. While America is protesting, Trump is pushing back against protesters. We see it in Oregon, something like what Trump did in Lafayette Park and what Bush did with rendition after 9-11 spiriting persons away to be interrogated. But those abuses, the ones that were by Bush, were offshore, where supposedly our law, our Constitution, didn't apply. But Trump is doing this by his special police force in Oregon. Charles Kaiser, a reporter for the Times, when only a student at Columbia and continued afterwards, and a past correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, and other publications, will offer his review on the goings-on in Oregon. In recent years, we've had a lot of talk about how no man is above the law, and so I invited Jerry Lefcourt, a renowned criminal defense lawyer with more than 40 years under his belt from New York, to talk about the president's abuse of the pardon in the Stone case, and what's the best way to see that justice is done. Jerry also has a bird's-eye view of what is happening in the U.S. Attorney's Office with a pending case, as he represents one of the defendants, and he discusses what we might expect out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York in the days ahead. Finally, there is the ever-present pandemic and the resistance of many to do what's obvious to protect themselves. Maria Dampman wrote of her experience when she reported to the hospital with symptoms that could have been the virus. I have authority to read what she wrote so that you can live through her eyes and being what this was like. But first, I'd like to talk about a man in 1963, at 24 years of age, who spoke to the conscience of America. His words ring down the years, and the now that he demanded that things be done then is the now we have before us when we must, we must finally resolve to restore the republic, to finish our still undone business, to treat all persons as equal and free.
1: We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom, and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail, but we will go to jail if this this is a price we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta, Mississippi, in southwest Georgia, In the black belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom.
0: It's said that Representative John Lewis, the young man you heard, was the conscience of the Congress. Congress does have a conscience, but it's almost exclusively occupied by the Democratic caucus, and rarely does a Republican strode across the aisle to do something that would make a difference in America. They are tied at the hip and in every other way to Mr. Trump. Bobby Scott is the chair of the House Education and Workforce Committee, and he works in the belly of the beast. This is what our discussion was about. We're very lucky to have with us today, Congressman Bobby Scott, who is both a state legislature and has been in Congress since uh, 1993. Is that right, Bobby? That's right. And uh, so you've been there about 27 years. So I guess you have some experience on difficult issues. Is that right?
2: We've been uh, we've had some complicated issues, and uh, I was on the Judiciary Committee for many years. I uh, became a Ranking Member and now Chairman of the education, education and Labor Committee and to give up my position on, um, on Judiciary.
0: Yeah, I, I do, and I guess at the same time I was serving as special counsel on both of those committees when you were on both of those committees. The, uh, well, you know, being Chairman of the Committee on Education and Labor is a significant assignment this time. I'd like to go into a couple of things that I, I noticed that has been a concern for you and the Committee. And during this question of how we reopen the schools, uh, I know that you called upon the CDC to come and testify, but they were refused to testify by the administration. Is that correct? Uh,
2: that's, uh, that's, that's right. I mean, if the CDC can't uh, give advice on how to open safely, who do we listen to? I mean, you don't want to listen to the people that wanted to... Um, uh,
0: drink disinfectant to um cure the coronavirus (laughs) yeah i think that's a good point um well are you concerned therefore not only are they telling the cdc not to testify but they seem to be bypassing the cdc and having information from the hospital the statistics on the infections go directly to hhs to be seemingly controlled by the white house
2: well, and that's and the control. It's a political control. With the CDC, the information is there for researchers to look at and to make uh, make to make judgments. When it goes to the uh, uh, administration uh, directly, uh, you don't know what they're going to do with it. It's, is it going to be available? Are they going to uh, release uh, favorable data, not unfavorable data? Uh, data were available. Through the CDC when it comes in and the numbers are the numbers, um, you know you don't know what you're going to get, and that's been the problem with this administration all the way through. They're not they don't they don't believe in science, and so we're trying to deal with a pandemic, and all you get is happy talk about what a good job they're doing, and um, you just found out a couple of days ago that they don't have a a plan for testing. That's why we had to put in the Heroes Bill a requirement. They have a, a strategy for testing. I mean, it's incredible. We'd have to put that in the bill, but um, you know, it is what it is.
0: Well, if I if I'm correct, you've been also very upset about the fact that the CARES Act provided certain funds for students, uh, and those funds have been uh, frozen, if they will, by DeVos, who passes as our Secretary of Education. Is that right?
2: Well, well, they haven't they haven't been distributed, but it's not only uh, frozen. Some have been bypassed. She's using. Some of the money aimed at low-income students to uh, private school students, regardless of income. I mean, the, uh, the, one of the problems we've got now with the uh, pandemic is that people uh, who are disadvantaged are even more disadvantaged. You see that in healthcare; care, those pre-existing conditions are more likely... Uh, to be uh, adversely affected, and in education, if you're on the lower end of an achievement cap, you're going to be uh, adversely affected. You're doing distance learning. Uh, some people don't have um, computers at home. Some people don't have connectivity at home. Uh, how are you going to um, take advantage of, um, of education? There are a lot of uh, problems, and so and, and the money is designed, and as a matter of fact, it's distributed based on a Title One. Uh, formula so it goes where it's most needed and you you look up and it's going to um, uh, upper-income private school students.
0: That's terrible. You know the Jefferson uh, from your home state and mine once said a nation that expects to be ignorant and free expects what never was and never will be but that seems to be the coda for this administration to restrict these opportunities for education.
2: Well, we, we've, um, uh, they have made it clear that uh, public education is uh, not their priority. Uh, they want to uh, make sure that people have uh, private school uh, opportunities. There's nothing wrong with private schools, but um, you shouldn't divert money from public schools and ignore public schools and think private schools are going to save you. Most of the people, whatever system you have, are going to be in the public schools, and we need to improve the public schools.
0: I couldn't agree more. uh, Now, you mentioned already the HEROES Act, and if I recall correctly, this passed in the Congress in May, and we've had trouble getting uh, Mitch McConnell on the Senate side to pick up this very important bill. How would you describe the act and its impact on, uh, on the crisis that we're facing in America?
2: Well one of the problems that we're having is that because of the pandemic, many states and local governments are seeing significant shortfalls in their revenues because they have to balance their budgets they they they're, 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 they're um, uh, experiencing cuts and one of the we saw this in Virginia our general Assembly ended uh, just as the pandemic was uh, kicking off and when we came back for the scheduled Uh, special session to consider governor's vetoes and and amendments, they forecast the revenue forecast had been amended, and we learned a new word, unallocated, Mm -hmm. teacher increases, 2% teacher increase, unallocated, counselors in the schools, unallocated, Um, money for community colleges, unallocated, money for uh, new construction at, at, at colleges, unallocated, that's just in the education piece. And uh, so we, we've, we've said that if we don't get money to uh, backfill this uh, revenue shortfalls, whatever we do for education in the HEROES Act will, will, will only serve to partially um, uh, offset some of the cuts. And so the uh, major part, the first part of the um, HEROES Act is um, state and local government uh, funding to make sure they don't have to cut their budgets and fire people in the middle of an economic crisis. Uh, air crisis. Uh, in addition to that, uh, there's money for for, for, for education um, so that they can uh, uh, safely reopen the schools. And incidentally, we also have the parallel fact uh, 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 an infrastructure bill that includes a Reopen and Rebuild America Schools Act, $130 billion to help um, uh, school infrastructures. The, C- the GAO found that A significant portion of um, of of the schools in the country, about half the school districts, have about half their uh, schools need significant um, um, either replacement or major repairs in their HVAC systems, heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems. Now, they've also the CDC has identified ventilation as an essential component to to opening schools safely. You can't have um, uh, students sitting up in uh, classrooms and not properly ventilated and think you're not going to have a problem. And so um, you can't do this. And one of the problems with the delay is if you're going to do something about it, you can't wait till uh, two days before school opens to pass a major funding bill and think the uh, HVAC systems are going to be all repaired and ready to go when school opens. That takes uh, time, planning and resources, and it's in the HEROES Act.
0: Doesn't the HEROES Uh, Act, uh, one of the questions has been if schools have to remain closed longer because of the virus, is about uh, food for children. Isn't there a food assistance component in the HEROES bill?
2: That was one of the first things that we did in uh, uh, in, in, in legislation, was to make sure that the students could get fed. Uh, We had uh, waivers and additional funding to make sure that the students who would normally be getting fed in the schools, and a lot of them, it's it's a significant portion of their proper nutrition, is from the school meals make sure they can do that at home. Now, that's nothing new for the school systems. I mean, they do it every summer. They have schools, they have student feeding programs. And so we just said, whatever you're doing during the summer, make sure you do it during, during the school year. All well, the students are, um, are are at home to make sure they're fed. Now it's uh, uh, going well, not as well, and it's not perfect, but uh, a lot of students are, are getting uh, getting fed in a way they wouldn't ordinarily um, ordinarily do. I mean, there's a lot of things in the uh, Heroes Act. Um, uh, one is um, a, um, a, a a direction to to OSHA, Occupational Safe and Health, Health Administration to come up with an enforceable standard to protect workers from airborne infectious diseases. There's right now no enforceable standard. They've got, for some industries, some unenforceable guidelines, but you need some enforceable standards to protect workers. Um, It's uh, it's incredible that after all the outbreaks in meatpacking plants and prisons and nursing homes, no enforceable standard to protect the workers. If you protect the workers, Naturally, you're going to have in, 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 a, in, a, um, in a nursing home. Naturally, you got to protect the, um, the, the, the the residents, but there's nothing. They, they're just some unenforceable uh, guidelines, and we, we want to make sure that uh, uh, that takes place. I mean, the, the the attitude towards work towards workers is so cavalier. I mean, you've got Democrats who want to make sure that the workers are protected with enforceable standards. If they get sick, for federal workers, since we have jurisdiction over federal workers' comp, we want a presumption that they, that they uh, got the uh, virus on the job and workers' comp covers it, because if you're infected, you're going to have medical bills and lost wages. So um, workers' comp would cover medical bills and lost wages. We want others, if they're treated for COVID-19, to be treated with no copays is and deductible, uh, we want to make sure that people who lose their jobs, um, uh, unfortunately in, in America you lose your job, you probably lose your insurance, Right. can keep their insurance with subsidies for insurance. Uh, we want to make sure they have paid leave. We want to make sure if in dangerous situations they get hazard pay, and we're trying to look out for the workers. You know what the Republican plan is for workers who might get infected uh, on the job? A waiver. <laughs> the only thing the only thing they have is if if you can prove that you're infected on the job and the infection was due to the fault of the employer negligence of the employer caused the uh, virus, the, the, the infection and you have medical bills and and, and and lost wages the only thing they've offered is immunity to the employer right so that they don't have to pay so the employee is stuck. I mean, the the idea, first of all, the the chance that you could prove your case, that you got infected on the job, not on the way to work, not on the beach during the weekend, not at the bar, uh, you know, after work, but on the job, if you can prove that, and you got to prove that it was a negligence of the um, employer that caused you to be infected. Not that you got it on the job, but it was the negligence of the employer that caused you to be infected. If you can prove all that, the only response is they want to immunize the uh, the employer. Well, no standard, no standards to reduce the chance you might get infected. No workers comp so that you you your bills might get might get covered. Uh, no treatment uh, without copays and deductibles. No making, They don't want to make sure that you keep your insurance. No paid leave. No hazard pay. For, uh, for workers working in dangerous situations, the only thing they're looking out for is make sure the employer doesn't have to pay a dime for all of the bills you have to pay. And, and some of the, if you go into the hospital, uh, you know, if you didn't have insurance, you're bankrupt. If you did have insurance, you may be bankrupt with the co-pays and deductibles. Correct. Um, and the only compassion they show is to the employer to make sure he's not on the hook, if you can prove it's his fault.
0: That's
2: what we're dealing
0: with. Well, Bobby, this is an important piece of legislation, and your synthesis is one of the best I've heard. And the remaining question is, uh, is there public pressure for the Senate to do what has failed to do since May? Uh, if,
2: which, you, if, if you listen to uh, McConnell, when we passed that bill, it was dead on arrival. Um, and then he said, well, we might have to consider some of it. And now they're going to come up with a bill in a few days. And and they're going to have to do something by the end of the month. I suspect that he's hearing from some of his senators who are hearing (laughs) uh, from from, from Republican school board members, Republican mayors, and Republican governors, talking to their Republican senators saying, hey, Buster, we are hurting and we need this federal support. And you talk about defund the police. We can't afford to fund the police if we don't get some of this. Some federal support. Uh, we can't open schools. Uh, uh, we have additional costs in opening schools. We can't open them regularly without uh, without this support. And let me tell you. And, and let me tell you something, Buster. <laughs> we're not going to cover. We're not going to cover for you. We're going to blame you.
0: Exactly. So y'all
2: play politics. Y'all play politics in Washington. And I suspect some of them are getting that message because some mayors are, are looking at next year's budget. And some governors are looking at what they what, what they can and can't do with the budget, and that's why you've seen uh, McConnell backtracking from dead on arrival to maybe consider it. To they've got to produce a bill. To uh, they'll have something uh, done before the end of the month. They've got the $600 extra unemployment compensation uh, that's been keeping this economy afloat. Um, they're saying that they they have no interest in the workers, of course. But they do have an interest in the stock market, and right. when those people stop stop spending those six hundred dollar checks, and the stock market reflects it, some of their um, some of their friends are going kind to of say, "You know what happened? Well, we give those people some money, so my stocks will go back up." Uh, so, so I, I think, um, uh, although they may not uh, have an interest in it, I think uh, they will be polit- They'll be in a situation where they've got to do something. They, they, they may not pass everything in the HEROES Act. And then people have asked, well, Democrats, what are you willing to give up? Well, let, let's see what, what the Republicans think is not important. Is Money for schools, is that important? Uh, money for um, uh, unemployment compensation, extended unemployment compensation that uh, is, is routine during, um, uh, during economic crises, is that important? Is uh, OSHA rule not important? When you lose your job, with the last pandemic, um, um, in the last economic crisis, the 08-09 um, uh, recession, we subsidized uh, COBRA payments. That's when you lose your job, you lose your insurance, but you can keep your insurance if you make the premium, if you pay the premiums. Well, you know, the premiums could be six, eight, as much as $1,500 a month you lost your job, you don't have that kind of money. Um, And and so we subsidized it at two-thirds of the cost. We subsidized Most of the people had to give up their insurance anyway because they didn't have the one-third. And so we just decided we're going to subsidize it 100% so you can keep your insurance. What is the point of making somebody give up their insurance, go on Obamacare, they'll be heavily subsidized, or Medicaid, that's total federal money, they gotta give up their, 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 their provider network, they gotta join another provider network. They gotta start up a new deductible probably. And then a couple of months la- a couple of weeks later, a couple of months later they get the job back. So they see the new providers, it was nice knowing you, uh, come back to the old providers and probably gotta start up the deductible all over again. And what what let, let them keep their insurance? Um, you know, is that, is that not important? So we, rather than say, well, we can give up this, that, and other, let's see what they think is not important, and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin negotiating. But um, uh, we'll, see, um, uh, we'll see, and I'm sure they are getting, they've got to be getting pressure from um, school board uh, members, mayors, and governors as to the economic crisis uh, people are in because they've got to balance their budgets, and you got places like, uh, I guess Nevada doesn't have any uh, state revenue. They don't have gambling revenue. They have sales tax. They have income tax. I don't know what they're going to do without any uh, federal assistance.
0: Let me ask you a more uh, general question about uh, where the nation's going. Uh, what hope can you offer the nation that we may restore the republic and end this uh, despot uh, in the White House?
2: Well, the polls are looking uh, favorable, but I I remind people that although um, Joe Biden has a lead today, um, I I believe Michael Dukakis had a 17-point lead in August. Right. And I think he carried carried a handful of states. Um, I mean, it was a landslide. He lost in a landslide. And so being ahead in July... Is you'd rather be ahead than behind, uh, but being ahead in July is not in, is not a guarantee that you're going to win the election. Uh, so people need to work, they need to um, organize, they need to register people to vote, they got to get the word out, they have to make sure people vote on election day. And if I think we have, if we have a fair election, I think we'll be in good shape. But we will be faced with all kinds of um, um, with all kinds of voter suppression. Um, because I think the, the uh, Republicans recognize that if people uh, have a free access to the polls, um, that uh, the Republicans will lose. And so uh, we saw it in Georgia, we saw it in Florida, uh, that um, uh, Wisconsin, um, we, we saw the Speaker of the House of Representatives talking to a reporter explaining how safe it was to vote. And he was dressed in mask, gown, uh, <laughs> PPE from head to foot, explaining through a mask how safe it was to vote. I mean, these guys, I mean, they don't even recognize how stupid they sound.
0: Well, what about the governor of uh, Oklahoma coming down with COVID and then saying, I don't think it had anything to do with attending the Tulsa rally for Trump, when he, which he didn't wear a mask and was, you know, within inches of other people at the rally.
2: Um, well, uh, the well, we have to follow the science, and um, it, it, it's if you if you don't believe in science, you get bizarre statements like that made that uh, um, it, it's all it's all a hoax until somebody in your family or you yourself get it. Um, uh, it it's it's just a hoax, and we we've we've been dealing with this. Uh, people are not dealing with it as, as a science. Um, The whole point of locking down was to, say, get some time and and slowly reopen with massive testing, contact tracing, mask wearing, and and other um, um, things you know will reduce the chance of getting infected. And um, a lot of places just opened the door and went right back to normal, and we're getting another wave. Right. Uh, so um, uh, some are talking about locking down again. But when the, the, what you gain by locking down is that it's locked down for two weeks, and everybody that's got it will know they have it, and they can stay home. And then people who come out can, uh, can be careful, wear masks, avoid large crowds, wash your hands, I mean, just do uh, tests, contact tracing, then you can get a hold of it, but we wasted all the time we were in lockdown because you came right out, and um, uh, and it spread again. You saw the the, the the grass going down, going down nicely. Right. But all of a sudden you come out and you go to the beaches and you're all on top of each other. And surprise! Um, it's it, you've got a you got a wave of um, of um, new um, new new infections. So you you have to might have to start all over again.
0: I think one of the encouraging signs has been. Uh... You know, the parents of children pushing back, uh, governors who seemed unreformed, uh, who thought of this as a political statement now supporting masks and pulling back from positions they had. I'm I'm thinking of Texas in particular, Uh, not Georgia, certainly, and Florida is in a compromised position and California, of course, is strong and trying to fight it. And so we have, uh, we the people, if you will, the citizens seem to get it despite the lies and misleading statements that come from the West Wing. I well, think when you,
2: get all the, when you get all the, the disagreeing statements, it's not hard to figure out who the scientists are and they are of one accord, that um, um, you, know, you should wash your hands, you should wear a mask. I mean, they, they've got a list of things that you can do, and they've talked about the importance of testing. I mean, the idea that we can't, I mean, I, I can, maybe maybe you can explain why you didn't have tests in February, but why you don't have tests in July when every other country figured it out, why you don't have a strategy um, uh, is just amazing, and how every other country can get uh, can get control of, over it, um,
0: and, and we, we can't. can't. Right, it's pretty terrible. Bobby, It's uh, I've, I've known you for a long time, and you're one of my stars in the sense that you've always approach difficult situations whether it be the impeachment or the current situation we're in with that kind of discipline but also this uh, empathy for the people how they how they suffer what they want to do and helping them fulfill their dreams and uh, i think that it's it's terrific that you're the chair of such a significant committee that's being affected in the issues that are being involved and i want to thank you for taking the time to answer a few questions to the public and i hope maybe we can follow up down the road
2: it sounds good to me, and it's good to work with you again. I uh, was we on the uh, committee when uh, you were staffing for impeachment, so it's, uh, it's good to talk to you again. <laughs>
0: good. Thanks again, Bobby. All right. Away from the Congress and streets across the nation, persons are protesting, exercising their First Amendment right to inform the community and our elected officials of what's wrong with government, what need be done to correct it. Trump has interfered and sought to suppress protests, and no place is more obviously under the Trump thumb than those protesting in Portland, Oregon. Listen to the Portland Mayor Steele, what he had to say.
3: The videos, the pictures, the experiences that we're
2: all witnessing here in Portland should be shocking to all Americans. The words and actions from President Trump and the Department of Homeland Security have shown that this is an attack on our democracy. Over the past week, President Trump has used our city as a staging ground to further his political agenda, igniting his base to cause further divisiveness and in doing so, endangering Portlanders. Mr. President, federal agencies should never be used as your own personal army. Let's be clear, this is not political theater. This is far more dangerous than that. We have federal officers on our streets further escalating tensions and causing harm to Portlanders right now.
0: Now let's talk with uh, Charles Kaiser, my special guest, about what's going down in Portland. We're privileged to have with us today Charles Kaiser, who has been a professional journalist, even going back to when he was a student at Columbia University at the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, The Washington Post, The New York Observer, New York Magazine. It makes me tired just thinking of all the places he's been. And among the things he's written... Is, a, is an amazing book, The Cost of Courage, which is about the French resistance by a man who not only speaks English better than I can, but also speaks French better than a lot of Frenchmen. And uh, I'm calling Charles Kaiser, who's uh, I'm glad he's with us, to talk about what's going on in Portland. Uh, what is going on in Portland, Charlie? What
4: is going on in Portland is the latest evidence that we have of the absolute contempt for the Constitution and the rule of law, which this administration has displayed from the day it took office. And what becomes clear every day that they're in office is once they've committed one crime and they haven't been prosecuted for it, then they become more determined to to commit a new crime. And, of course, that was the real disaster after the House had the wisdom to impeach the president for just a few of his many crimes. The Senate... Failed to follow through, failed to convict him, and thereby gave him, in his own mind, permission to commit as many more crimes as he could. And given the fact that the only person, the only reason this person has for a living is to use the presidency to steal on behalf of himself and his family, the consequences are one continuous crime
0: wave. Now, focusing on Portland, Oregon, where they've had peaceful protests there involving the systemic racism, uh, isn't it a fact that the uh, DHS has sent there federal officials who are intervening in the, uh, the demonstrations and apparently both harassing, arresting, and taking people away in black vans the way they did in the days of rendition? Is that a fair summary? That is a fair summary, and while it's not
4: entirely new to have federal undercover agents at these kinds of demonstrations, because after all, in 1968, during the Democratic Convention in Chicago, we now know that a lot of the violence that took place with the Chicago police was instigated by federal undercover agents who were purposely doing things like uh, putting up the Viet Cong flag on the local flagpole in order to enrage everybody so we have had federal intervention of other kinds before but certainly to have them go in and take people off the street is completely without precedence to my knowledge except of course uh, in the foreign countries where we have done this uh, before interdicting people often arresting equally innocent people abroad and making them disappear. But to have American citizens disappear off of American streets is a new and horrifying twist
0: on an old game. On its face, it sounds like they're doing the equivalent of arresting without authority and kidnapping, which is itself a crime. So it would appear that they're being directed in some sort of seemingly anonymous fashion, although we know who they are, to commit crimes against local citizens domestically which is uh, an upgrade of the terrible thing they were doing with rendition to send people off to be tortured in foreign nations where, arguably, the United States didn't have any jurisdiction. But here we are in Portland, Oregon, and they're being asked to leave the city. Uh, how, do, how would you rank this?
4: What's been going on in Portland, Oregon, is illegal, unconstitutional, un-American, and it has only one benefit. It's getting the attention of even more people, especially in the press, to the fact that you and I have been on top of for the last three years, namely that this is a completely lawless operation run by a mobster, and it's finally, that things that are as blatant as what is going on in Portland right now is convincing people like Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post, who wrote a column this morning saying that she was finally upset about all this, and then carefully pointed out that she had not been one of the alarmists who thought that the rule of law was in jeopardy. Well, you and I were not alarmists. We were realists, and we just happened to be more aware of what was going on than people like Ruth Marcus, who are almost pathologically neutral on these questions. (laughs) So So, to to the extent that this convinces more people that we are in the constitutional crisis of a lifetime, uh, it could actually be useful. But only if a federal judge comes along and rules on one of the cases that's already filed against this practice, one of them by, I think, the Washington State ACLU, uh, hopefully a federal judge will intervene and point out that what is going on is completely illegal and unconstitutional, and we can stop it. But to the extent that it attracts the attention of more people to the crisis that the whole country is living through, uh, then that part of it is a plus.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Charlie, for giving some guidance to those who are still uninformed as to the danger that lurks behind these uh, lawless operations under HHS and otherwise to discourage citizens from protesting, but also to to work it uh, as a political angle for a re-election campaign rather than administering an impartial balance of justice.
4: Yeah, well, that's the most outrageous part, is they're now leaking the idea that this was just another way to appeal to their base and get them excited to vote for the Donald Trump again, which makes it even more outrageous in some ways.
0: Well, until next time, Charlie, and I'm sure it'll be soon. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
4: Thank you very much, John.
0: If there is a nostrum repeatedly heard these days, it is the expression that no man is above the law. They say it like it's true, even as Trump repeatedly and continuously ignores the rule of law. And among his latest offenses that had elected officials shuddering but failing to act in any way was to commute the sentence of Roger Stone. He did that. Trump's co-conspirator in the effort, the successful effort to interfere in the presidential election of 2016 with the help of WikiLeaks. Jerry Lefcourt, a renowned criminal defense lawyer, who I think is the case, has never asked that anybody be prosecuted because he has defended so well those people deserving of his representation, has some ideas what we should do in response, how we could prosecute Stone, perhaps how we should, and why that's the best approach. Also... Jerry and I had a discussion about Rudy Giuliani. We're lucky to have with us today Jerry Lefcourt, a premier criminal uh, defense lawyer who's handled some pretty complex civil cases as well. In 40 more years of practice, he's represented almost anybody that you've ever heard of. Uh, Yippie founder, Abby Hoffman, securities trader Bruce uh, Newberg, Harry Helmsley, Russell Crowe, Speaker Mel Miller, Irv Gotti, Kerry Kennedy, and the list goes on. Jerry has a host of accomplishments, and he's good to talk about any number of issues. But the one that we're interested in focusing on today is uh, what do you do with Roger Stone after what the president did with Roger Stone? Jerry, good to have you with me. (laughs) It's nice to be here, John. What what, uh, is your take on what they should be doing about Roger Stone, if anything, after the president had this commutation, not a pardon, but a commutation?
3: So, you know, the judge at Sentencing, where she gave Roger Stone 40 months, said that people have hailed you for standing up for the president, but the evidence showed that you were covering up for the president. So what he was convicted of was lying to Congress about issues concerning WikiLeaks and the president. And why would he be lying about it? He was convicted of five counts of perjury, one count of obstruction and another count of intimidating a witness not
0: to testify something that you and I call witness tampering <laughs> an obstruction of justice etc
3: absolutely so and that particular individual whose name is Randy Credico who he threatened lives in New York and was in New
0: York and that's your home stomping threatened. ground well, right. that's your home stomping ground right or your principal that is, yeah that is my home stomping ground and <laughs> governor
3: cuomo who now has become america's hero uh, as he should be for his work around the virus had passed and signed into law in october a new provision that allowed a prosecution of somebody in situations just like roger stone namely committed a crime in new york and even though he was his sentence was commuted it's part of the pardon power of the president He could be prosecuted if the people of the state of New York could show a number of things, such as whether there was excessive, excessive, excuse me, conspiratorial conduct that was alleged between the, the person who was pardoned and the president, or who has material information that inculpates the president, or could inculpate the president. So he could be prosecuted in New York, even though the president tried to shut him up by granting a commutation, the district attorney of Manhattan, Cy Vance, could bring a case.
0: Now, you mentioned that he'd been lying to Congress, but one of the things he was lying about was Russia's interference, uh, colluding with Russia on behalf of Trump, and conversations that he, Stone, had directly with Trump, apparently about WikiLeaks interfering in the election. Is that about right?
3: That is exactly right. And if you think about it, between Stone, who was commuted. And Manafort, who refused to speak, these guys, and of course, probably Flynn as well, all of them had information that directly impacted the Mueller uh, efforts that were never heard. And you think that we, we could have come a lot closer to a conspiracy by the campaign with Russia in the efforts to affect the election with those kinds of people
0: testifying. Yeah now I, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit uh, but you'll tell from my tone that I don't think this is a great idea which is that uh, Congress is talking about let's have uh, Stone up here again and let's interrogate him and see if he'll lie and, uh, and then really go after him. What do you think of weighing that alternative versus the notion of actually prosecuting Roger Stone for the wrong he's done in New York, including witness tampering. Well, the
3: prosecution idea is a lot quicker, a lot more effective, and it's really in the in the eyes of the district attorney as to whether to do it. Congress,
0: he probably won't show. They'll go to court, they'll fight, and, you know, four yeah. years from now we'll have an answer. Miss you guys. So uh, uh, now uh, let's turn to what do you think... Uh, the DA, uh, Vance, would do. Do you think he'd be interested in this? You and I I I are talking about it, huh? I think he would
3: be. He's being challenged by now six people are in the uh, Democratic primary uh, to see who challenges uh, Cy Vance. And some of them are very accomplished and very smart and very experienced. And they're gonna be talking about things like this and debating things like this. So answer
0: has got pressure on him if he wants to be reelected. Okay, well, uh, we got two votes. You and I certainly think that makes more sense <laughs> than the hill. Well, let me ask you something else. You, you are involved, I think you are involved in the case involving Parnass and Furman, the two uh, mutton Jeff Aides to Rudy Giuliani. And there have been talks in the press about some progress in that case. And some think that Berman was uh, going to be replaced by somebody alien to the office to help uh, manage that case, if you will. Now, how far off base am I about any of this?
3: You know, I don't think you're off base at all because uh, when they came to take uh, Berman down, there are at least two or three investigations that the president certainly cared about. One was... Uh, the Inauguration Committee, which raised millions of dollars and nobody knows how and why and what the deals were. Uh, another is Rudy Giuliani and his relationship to Parnas and Fruman. Parnas and Fruman started a company called Fraud Guarantee. <laughs> that, they, that first price, they would guarantee your company was not fraudulently dealt with by anybody. And allegedly, the facts are that they held out Rudy Giuliani as part of the company, who, of course, had all this experience as a prosecutor, who would see to it that in return for your payments to them, they would see that you were not defrauded. Now, whether Rudy was part of that or not is what the grand jury is considering right this minute, because the prosecutors have announced in court that they expected to have a superseding indictment to those charges that are pending, which are election fraud charges, of Furman and Parnas, uh, and that we expect the grand jury to have a superseder any day now.
0: Now, when you say a superseder, do you think the charges will be limited to Parnas and Furman? I know I'm getting you here on shaky ground trying to predict what the prosecution is going to do, but the obvious question is Mr. Giuliani, the uh, self uh self-declared, who knows all and does everything and is the agent for the president. Is there any chance that Rudy's going to be in the superseding indictment?
3: That is what the press has been speculating about. Because of his involvement with Parnas and Pruman and this company, Fraud Guarantee, there's a question of whether Rudy is going to be indicted and superseded into this case jury is sitting now and it's been all over the press and suddenly uh while the grand jury is sitting the attorney general tells uh, the u.s attorney that you know thank you for your resignation and the u.s attorney said what are you talking about i'm not resigning i have cases that i'm looking into and i and i'm not resigning well he got him out on the condition that berman's deputy a woman by the name of Audrey Strauss, who is respected by everybody, defense, bar, prosecution, judges, she is thought of very highly. And she's now in charge of the office. So while Barr and Trump did not get Berman out and put somebody in that they know, they still made an attempt to do so. And why would they be doing that right now Right. Uh, while, the, while this case is before the grand jury?
0: Well, because, and they wanted, yeah, they wanted a parachute in someone else, not from the office, not Audrey Strauss, something like what they did with Shea and other people in uh, in connection with the Flynn case. And uh, so, um, so this would make it more difficult for them to control the outcome of a superseding indictment. And when you say now, we're talking about July this year, is that right? Yes, the
3: prosecutors in the Parnas-Fruman case, it's a four-defendant case, but those are the two main defendants, told the judge that they expected to have a superseding indictment in July. So we're all waiting. Uh, I represent a fourth defendant who is not involved in fraud guarantee, the wonderful company that <laughs> Parnas-Fruman uh, represent. Uh, and so we're all waiting to see. We have a trial date in February, and so.
0: Stay tuned. Yeah. Well, Jerry, this has been terrific. Is there anything you'd like to add? Any, As they say on the air, breaking news, because um, this, I think, is real uh, grist for the mill for people who care about the rule of law and think that we should be doing better than we've been doing, and we may not do better, and you don't have to agree to this until uh, Trump walks out that front door. Well,
3: the only thing I would add is that I never have called for a prosecution of anybody about anything. (laughs) I've been a defense lawyer all my life, but the rule of law and the Constitution really are at stake. When you see somebody like Roger Stone uh, dealt with that way, and he's told everybody
0: that he kept his mouth shut for the president, (laughs) 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 you know, it just shocks your conscience. And no matter
3: what you are, you have to stand up for the rule of law.
0: Yes, well, I think you've done the right thing, and I hope it makes a difference for... Uh, D.A. Vance, uh, not just in the election, but for the rule of law, because we have a special opportunity to use local prosecutors in a way that has them independent of uh, the mouthpiece bar who works for the president and not for justice. And so... Well,
3: absolutely, John. You and I both have labored in this criminal justice system our whole adult lives, (laughs) and I'm sure we could agree that we never saw a time when the attorney general had done things to make you feel like the country was lawless and we were close to being a banana republic.
0: Yeah. Jerry, can you remember the, the flashpoint that made you think, I want to represent the abused and misunderstood in the criminal justice system, so-called system?
3: Well, I grew up uh, in uh, a neighborhood in Jersey until I was 10, where i was one of three whites in my school it was an entirely black neighborhood and needless to say those were my close friends from kindergarten on and i i saw what what society does uh without without caring and so it's always been an incredible effect on my life that just a lot of the people, you know, who, could, who I could have grown up with, uh, and affected my view of the criminal justice system. Well. You know, public defenders are so underfunded and so inadequate for the, for the war that they have with very well-funded and experienced prosecutors with great resources, the system is just not balanced.
0: Well, you know, when you look back on life, sometimes while you're doing it, it seems like a random walk. But that choice made a big difference, a favorable difference for a lot of people because you did that. And I think that's just terrific, Jerry. Thank you, John. (laughs) Well, good talking with you. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime, maybe after the indictment comes down. (laughs) Well, it should be soon. Thank you. Finally, we have another battlefield, mostly treated as first in our constellation of troubles and well-deserved because we need to tackle it and it's the pandemic. Rather than talk about the astonishing numbers, I thought it might be helpful to share the words written by Maria Dampman. As I said, I have authority to read what she wrote. This time, my lungs decided to stop working for whatever reason and I was all sorts of short of breath, and my chest hurt like hell. So to the hospital we went. I waited as long as I could, praying somehow I would miraculously recover, but I was only getting worse without treatment. So I get to the designated COVID designated hospital and there's a nurse outside wearing a mask and gloves. She asks why I'm there, takes my temp with one of those scanner things and proceeds to lead me to this side gray steel door. You don't go through the main hospital with a cough. We get the new special entrance. I'm in a makeshift room that's still outside the hospital with only a few cloth partitions and a bunch of metal folding chairs. It's hot, humid, and uncomfortable. I can't stop coughing, and the N95 mask I'm wearing is not making things any easier to breathe. So I hang out there alone, as people with scary coughs also aren't allowed visitors or guests. I sit out there for a while, the silence eerie as hell, the fact I'm in the hospital, but outside, and can hear birds chirping is more than a little surreal. Finally, a nurse comes and gets me, takes all my info, and escorts me into the hospital. It was silent. Everyone in COVID-land is in their own room with the doors closed. No visitors, no staff roaming the halls or laughing behind the nurse's station. The few staff I pass are all masked, gloved, and gowned. Here I need to clarify. The nurses and doctors I see aren't wearing masks. They are wearing respirators. My nurse says she loves hers as she feels much safer wearing it. They are actually pretty neat but couldn't possibly be comfortable. The thing is strapped to her head at least eight different ways and covers pretty much every inch of her face except her eyes. They all sound a little like Darth Vader when they talk. I start coughing at one point, still wearing my N95 mask, and they tell me, To not remove it unless I'm told to, no problem. I don't have to tell them it's hard to breathe in it. They already know. By the way, when you have a bad cough and are wearing a good mask, you can smell the inside of your lungs. Mine smell like something died in there. These are the things you notice, the things you think about when you are in an otherwise silent COVID ward. There's a man in the room next to mine with a cough that makes my hack sound like a tickle. He's screaming and moaning and coughing until at one point he just stops. I don't know why he stops, and I'm not going to ask. I'm too afraid to ask. I'm in there for a few hours. The same nurse coming and going as the they run tests. Everything comes to me, including x-ray is I'm not allowed to leave the room, I'm having a hard time breathing, especially in the N95, but I don't remove it. I'm too afraid that one Arant germ will find its way into my nose and infect me. I don't know if that's even possible or if I'm being germ paranoid, but I'm not taking a chance. And just in case I do have it, I'm not going to risk infecting someone else. I feel incredibly claustrophobic, but not because of the mask or the fact my room has the door closed. It takes me a while to figure out. Why I'm so incredibly uneasy. It's the silence. I've been in the hospital way too damn much this year, and before now it's never been this quiet. The silence is heavy, ominous. It's freaking creepy. Even turning on the TV for some ambient noise doesn't help. It only accentuates how freaking quiet it really is in here. By the time I leave... After having another COVID test that felt like two hot pokers getting shoved up my nose and into my brain, I have a handful of prescriptions and a diagnosis of something like asthma bronchitis, working into pneumonia, maybe COVID, who the knows. The doc tells me to come back if I'm still having trouble breathing in a few days or if things get worse. I thought to myself, these freaking drugs better work because like hell I'm coming back here. Yesterday... The hospital called and told me my COVID test was negative. Today is the first day I feel like I can take a halfway decent breath. So the antibiotics must be kicking in. I hope you'll forgive me for not saying at the outset that she survived the fear that she had COVID-19. As it was for me, I thought it would be a more forceful meditation if you went through the experience as Maria did without knowing the outcome, so you get a better sense of her anxiety and what others should be concerned about when they think that this pandemic is a hoax. Maria is with us, and she's going to talk some more about why she wrote this. And I thought it would be useful to ask Maria, a novelist, so how are you doing now? Maria, thanks for joining us. Hey, My pleasure. Maria, so how are you doing? What, what? How do you feel after having had this experience at the hospital? Uh,
5: it was probably one of the most terrifying and surreal experiences of my life.
0: That's amazing. Um, that's amazing because that's a, that really says something. Of all the illnesses and losses in life, that this had this uh, poignant feeling that is incomparable to anything else in your life. Uh, why do you think you wrote about it? What made you, I know you're a novelist, but what made you feel you had to write about this? Obviously you felt that way.
5: It was something that I actually um, and kind of argued with myself over if I actually wanted to write about it or not. And I came to the conclusion that I needed to. Because there's so many people out there that still think that this is a hoax and it's not real, and it's real, you know. If it, I wish there was a way that all the people that don't want to wear masks or think that this is some kind of scheme to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected, I, I wish I could just make them go and experience what I experienced last week, and they would realize that this is very, very real. i bet. And, yeah, that, that was my whole thinking. I was like, you know what, if I can get one more person to wear a mask, if I can get one more person to believe that this is not a hoax, then I've done my job.
0: Did you have to, were you and your husband concerned about distancing or anything while you were, before you'd been to the hospital and finally after a couple of days got a favorable report?
5: Yes, um, we have, I, I have um, autoimmune disease and I am extremely high risk. And um, when all of this started, my, my rheumatologist actually said to me, this is something that could kill you you need to take this very seriously and since march 15th i've left my house four times and twice two of those was to go to a doctor's appointment
0: so we're we're taking this very seriously well maria i think you did a wonderful act by sharing your experience with others there are some who will probably not understand this and hopefully they'll be spared the disease and 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 not die as a result of uh, the disease. But uh, for others that are wondering what it's really like, I think you've done them a service because you've given them an insight into how terrifying this can be and, and what others are suffering while you were at the hospital and could hear what they were going through. I think it is poignant how you repeatedly emphasize the silence. I thought that was very effective to give one a feeling of what it would be like to be isolated like that concern for your own life. Thank you.
5: Yeah, it's, if I can convince one person to wear a mask, then it'll
1: all be worth
0: it. Okay, well, thank you, Maria. Thank you for joining us. Anytime. I think this is a fair cross-section of what appear to be the day-to-day areas that concern us and there's more those things that we must resolve to reform but the predicate for any reform is the cashiering of mr trump that he must be voted out of office as i speak this podcast the poll numbers favor biden by 15 points but as bobby scott mentioned when we discussed this Governor Dukakis was favored by 17 points in the summer he ran for office in 1988, and he didn't make it. We can't take anything for granted. If we hope to restore the Republic, to keep it, if we can, a Republic, we have to get every person to vote this November 3rd, any way legally they may. In my lifetime, there's never been a more important election. There's never been a worse president, perhaps in the history. I'm sure that's true for many more Americans, not just for me. And I think that's the prod to get us out and to vote, whether it be by ballot, in person, or by mail-in, or any other way that is legal. We have to cherish the vote that can set things right. Well, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our special edition. Subscribe if you haven't. We'll be with you again next Sunday. All the best.